Well, good morning. My name is Eric Hoffman, executive pastor here at Fellowship Franklin. I'm so glad you're here with us if you're a guest. If you want to, open up uh, your Bibles to Mark 12. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a chair in front of you. And that would be our gift to you. If you don't have one at home, you can just take that with you. We'd love uh, to, to give that to you as well. Where we've been in Mark, in this, up to, in this little section right here, this section at the temple, there is these people trying to trap Jesus. There's the, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the scribes, and they're all trying to lay these traps for Jesus to try to destroy Jesus. And Jesus is going to do what he's done many times throughout the Gospel of Mark. He's going to say something that in our world, it just doesn't make any sense. And his disciples are going are gonna to see it. There's, it's the upside-down kingdom of what Jesus talks about. The greatest will be, will be least, the first will be last, these type of things, right? He says these things, and you're like, this makes no sense. What he says about the widow today giving makes no sense uh, in the eyes of the disciples and makes no sense in, in our world. So what is Jesus communicating here? What Jesus is, is, is seeing, what he is able to see visibly and tangibly is unseen to us just in our regular life. So Jesus sees things that are unseen to us, and he sees them clearly and tangibly. Think about uh, technology and what technology has offered us in, in, in the last, uh, last hundred years even. We're able to see uh, things under a microscope that were before unseen to us. We're able to see below the earth's surface to see where oil is, to see where other resources are. Um, because of technology in the medical field, think about all the things that have come out with x-rays, MRIs, um, all, the, all these type of things. We can actually see what was before unseen to us. And I, I had a recent experience with this in the, in the medical uh, field uh, a couple weeks ago. I, I went in, and I've been having uh, what's called PVCs, which is in your heart. It's like the, lo- the lower valve system where it, it contracts, and it kind of causes like uh, where it feels like it's a skip beat. Now, this happened, this is in my family, so it's, it's usually benign. It's usually no big deal. But I've been having it more frequently uh, in the last, the last couple months, and it's probably because of stress, which is my work, which you guys are my work, so thanks a lot for the stress. <laughs> And, um, and so I was in there, and I was just like, you know, I, I saw Melissa, I was just like, you know, it's just getting more consistent. I don't want to mess around with my heart, um, but be, be encouraged. She has a good life insurance policy on me. So, um, so I went in there, and they hooked me up to an EKG. I don't know if you've ever had an EKG done, but there's like 100 different wires going all, all over my body, and they, they do this EKG. And what was unseen to me, what I even couldn't feel in a couple of minutes, just like printed out, and it was like my heartbeat, like an intricate detail. And it got me thinking about what Jesus over and over in the Gospels will talk about with someone's internal life is actually made visible by their actions. Like you can actually see someone's heart tangibly by what they care about, what they spend their resources on, their time, their talents, their treasure— where their treasure is, their heart will be also. In, in Matthew 7, he talks about a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. So if you look at a tree and you see bad fruit, what can you assume about the internal part of that person's life? So we can actually see the internal based on what is happening. So in this passage, we are going to see the unseen be flushed out before us in the tangible scene. And money, more than anything, shows our internal desires. Does it not? 
I mean, think about your budget and where you spend money. If the person next to you, for just a minute, could see into your credit card statements, could see your bank account, could see all those things, what would they conclude about what you value and what you put as importance? Would they see your direct TV package and that you spend and, and have all these things? Would they see, what would they see that you spend on your car, your house, uh, tuition, all these type of things? They would, they would be able to see where you put values, right? The internal desires and will and those type of things actually gets played out into our actions, and I want you to think about that, like just for a second, where, what would people see of how we spend our money? What would they determine that we value and that is important to us? Just think about that for a second. Just kind of go over your, your monthly uh, statements and those type of things. And, and I think it, what, what's going to come out today is that this passage is really not just about money. A lot of people, when they talk about the widow's might, they focus just on the money aspect and the giving portion of it. But I think this passage speaks a whole lot bigger than just something about money. It speaks about the internal, our internal lives, our heart's desires, and how that gets fleshed out. And what Jesus, what Jesus calls us to is to give all to him. So if Jesus is the Messiah, the God-man, the Son of God, then he demands our whole life because he gives his whole life to us. So beginning in verse 35, let's, let's jump in right here. And Jesus began uh, to say, so he's teaching in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? So Jesus is in the temple. He's still teaching in here. After the barrage of traps of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Herodians, he begins teaching. As he's teaching them, he knows that they're plotting against him. He knows that they, they want to kill him. They want to end his life, end his ministry, and end what he's doing. And he is going to make it crystal clear in this statement about what he's going to say about who he is. He's going to make it so crystal clear to them of the one you've been seeking, that you say that you have been waiting for all these years, the Messiah, I am he. It's a question about his identity so if we get this question about Jesus' identity wrong, we are wrong about salvation and we end up condemning our own souls. And so the question for us this morning, I think is the most important question that any human could ever answer is who is Jesus? So we get this fuller account in Matthew 22. We actually get this fuller account of what is happening here. And Jesus asks them a question. So what's been happening in this text the whole time? They've been asking Jesus tough questions. Jesus is going to turn the tables and he's going to ask them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then David in the spirit calls him Lord? So the question about whose son is the Messiah would have been one that the scribes and Pharisees and, and the religious leaders would have answered quickly. They would have said, the Messiah is the son of David. They would have quoted um, probably several passages. Look at Second uh, Samuel seven twelve through 13. It mentions in there that David's offspring will be king and he will rule this kingdom for eternity. And so they would have been able to, to say quite, quite easily to Jesus, uh, the Messiah is going to be the son of David. This is where Jesus turns it. So you'll notice when Jesus quotes, uh, anytime that an Old Testament passage is quoted, it's in all caps in your Bible. So anytime that uh, all caps, you see all caps in there, it's, it's quoting something from the Old Testament. And he quotes Psalm 110, 
where David himself says in the Holy Spirit, David is writing the very words of God by the Spirit of God. And Jesus, by referencing Psalm 110, he's testifying that what David said is the word of God through the Spirit of God, and he is giving that as the authority of Scripture. So David, as he says this, he's testifying of who this Messiah will be. Now, the first word, Lord, the first Lord, there is all capitals. Some, uh, some translations will, will just show you that in English, but it's all caps, L-O-R-D, Lord. That is speaking to Yahweh. That is the, uh, it's all capitals, it's Yahweh. In the Godhead, this would be God the Father. Then the second Lord is capital L, and then all small case would be Adonai, which would be in the Trinity would be speaking to Christ, the Son, the Messiah. So, God the Father says to Adonai the Son. So how is it that the Father would say to the Son, Jesus? How is David, the king, a human king, going to say to God, sit at my right hand? That's what Jesus is getting at. How is David, a human king, going to say to the divine, sit at my right hand? See, the Messiah would come God in human human flesh. So the only way that this actually this passage actually works is if God is saying this to God the Son. David wouldn't be able to say this and this is what Jesus is making very clear that he is the Messiah, the God man, the divine son of God. Let's look at the next section in, in verses 38 through 40 Jesus as he begins uh, teaching he's He's, he's warning against the scribes, the experts in the law. So he begins to give this warning. And so as he's teaching, he begins to, to give this warning of who the scribes, uh, what they're doing, and the motivations around this. Now this is so fascinating. Where are the scribes and Pharisees? There's no indication that they have left his vicinity. So Jesus isn't being passive-aggressive in this. He's being... I, just aggressive. I mean, he's just, he's just saying it just straight out. Like, he's not talking behind their backs. Like, he's just saying the scribes. And they're like still right around here, and he's warning all the people. Now, this would be really fascinating to the people. Put yourselves in their situation. These are the religious leaders who every good Jew would have been trying to aspire to and trying to live up to. They would have thought that this was the way to live with God and this is what I need to be like. And what is Jesus doing? Don't be like the people that you think you need to aspire to be like. Now this is, in our culture, think about this. Don't be chasing after celebrity status and getting uh, your name renowned and known because it doesn't deliver what it promises. And actually what they're doing is bankrupt and void. So Jesus is speaking very clearly, but what is he warning them about? Let's look into like, what he's warning them about. They had the respect of, of the people, and so this is just going to come as a shock to them. So what specifically is he warning about? Well, they walk around in long flowing robes. They parade around pulling attention to themselves and their status. They are outwardly showing their prominence and their wealth. They are not the millionaire next door. I mean, if they had social media, they would be um, posting pictures of them getting on their private jets and sitting in a bed of cash, okay? So this is what he's talking about. At banquets and gatherings in the community, 
they're placed at the seats. They want the attention. They want to be known as, hey, we are the people that everyone should be looking up to, and we are, we're kind of the heads. But this is, even, the, even their prayers are for themselves to get the approval of others and to, and to show others how godly they are. They're living for themselves, and their faith is self-focused. Their trust is in themselves. So Jesus isn't saying don't honor people in this passage. It's not what he's saying. He's saying look at their motivations. Look at their internal life that's leading them to live this life of actions in this way that is not pleasing and not coming after the heart of God. And then he uses this vivid language, this figurative language of they devour widows' houses. They eat widows' houses. I mean, that's what he's saying. But then in the next section, what are we going to look at? Who, who gives? It's, it's the widow. So this connection here, that the system that they've created, the most vulnerable in society, they are actually devouring. They're actually causing harm to the most vulnerable in society. And so his warning is to, for the people to watch out for how they are living their lives. And that at the end, God will bring justice on how they're living. God will handle and bring justice for how their unrighteousness is being played out. Their motivations are going to be exposed before him. So the last portion of our text this morning is, the, is the, probably the most common one that we've, that probably a lot of you have heard sermons on this. A lot of you have um, experienced uh, reading this and very familiar with the widow's might. And so we're going to look at, we're going to look at this. I'm going to talk a whole lot more about this um, in the end, but let's look at this last por- portion. So after teaching, Jesus, I mean, he's human, right? He's, he's humanity. He would probably be tired, so he sits down, finds a place to sit, and he's in the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women. This is the large open space in there, and he sits down, and he starts just watching the people this is during Passover, so there's tons of people filling the court. And in, this, uh, in the court of the women right here, there's 13 receptacles that are, are brass, and they're shaped as a, uh, a trumpet, and they're all around the court of the women. And this is where the people would come and they put their offerings in. Now, uh, back in this time, they didn't have credit cards, they didn't have checks, they didn't have paper money. What kind of money did they have? Coins. So the coins would, uh, would make money, uh, would make noise when they're dumped in a trumpet-shaped brass uh, offering thing. So when you have the rich, where it says that they came up and they, they were giving a lot, how did they know they were giving a lot? So think about this. If the, if the rich come up and they have a lot of coins and it's, a, it's metal on metal, what's going to happen? When you're going to... You're going to what? You're going to hear it. So they're, they're very conscious of how much someone is giving, not just because they went up to one of these 13 places, but because of what? The sound that it makes. So the sound that it makes is actually telling them how much the person is giving. So when the widow comes up with two of the smallest coins and lightest coins, the, the mite, she comes up and she throws them in. What are they going to hear? Not very much. So comparatively, you can tell how much someone is giving by the sound that it is making. And so Jesus, he's doing some people watching. 
right? Have any of you ever done this at like an amusement park or something? You just sit down, you're tired, and you're just doing some people watching, making commentary going on. Some of you are probably really good at it. I know some of you just felt conviction come over you for the things that you've uh, been noting. But Jesus, they're observing this, and then she comes up and she puts two coins in. So what does Jesus do? He seizes this teaching opportunity, and he calls his disciples to, uh, to him, and he says, Listen, look at what she gave. She gave more than everyone else in here combined. Again, this is like, Jesus, what? No, she didn't. Because we didn't hear it. We heard everyone else's and like, if you totaled up all the money and so like, what are you saying? Like, Jesus has seen something that we do not clearly see. He's seen something that we do not clearly see. Not numerical in the amount of giving, but from her heart. What does it say that she gives? She gives all. All that she had, all that she had to live on in that day. So Jesus, in verse 43, what does he say? He calls his disciples to himself. And he says, truly, I say to this, this poor widow put in more contributions to the treasury than all put out of their, in their, circum, uh, their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned and all she had to live on. So some uh, have come and given, but they've given out of what they won't miss. It's their surplus. They've, they've given out of something that is just surplus to them. But she has come and she has given out of great cost. Now the word used here is really interesting. The word bios, that we get our word biology. She gave out of what sustained her life. She gave her daily bread. She gave what sustains her life. She is giving out of an act of trust and dependence to God for her very life. She is all in. Now here's where, here's where I want to make some connections here in this passage where sometimes when we, the way we teach and the way we work through our, our scriptures, sometimes it can kind of get disjointed. But this, this, this section here, I want you to see it as all connected. So here's what I mean. Go back to verse 30 where Jesus is talking about the greatest commandment. And when, when they're talking about this, and you shall love the Lord your God with, what's the next word? All your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. What does the widow give? All. Jesus, I think very clearly in this, is pointing out that a true disciple of mine is going to love me with all of them. That their trust and dependence is going to be in me and she is demonstrating what love of God looks like. And she's contra- he's contrasting the scribe's faith and the widow's faith. He is showing them this is what you think a follower of God looks like, but I'm going to show you this is what a follower of God actually looks like. And he's going to, in his eternal perspective, he is going to show them very clearly this is what it looks like. So giving shows our hearts and our trust. This passage is telling us to give all. Now we know from the rest of scripture that this isn't the practice of, of give all every day, uh, you know, just every, everything you have, just give, give away. We, we know that there's, there's a difference there. But she comes in and she gives. Now, she doesn't give to impress others because the sound that her giving makes would not impress others. She probably felt, she could have felt shame coming in there. I don't have as much as these other people, but God, I'm going to give you this. 
Let me trust you. I'm going to be so dependent on you. So even as they give, the scribes as they give, they give to impress. And isn't it so true how even the good things that the scribes do, they do it with wrong motivations. And how sin can subtly change even the good things that we do. We begin serving, but we serve so others can notice how we serve. We give so that others can see how we give. We do certain things so that others can be impressed with us. So when Paul talks about giving, let's just talk about just the money aspect, and then I'm going to blow, blow it up a little bit bigger in this. When Paul talks about giving of our finances in the second letter of the Corinthians, he calls us to give out of joy what we've decided to give. So he talks about how do we give generously with joy? It's in recognizing the generosity of God and that he has given all and that all is his and that we give out of joy because of the generosity of God that we've recognized in our hearts and that is thankfulness back to him. So it's grace that we have received. And the more that I mature in my faith, the more that I see that it isn't the works of my hands that have got me to the place, but it is the grace of God. It is his faithfulness in putting people in my life, of giving me opportunities. It is all grace upon grace. It isn't me and my efforts and my striving. It is God in his good hand working in my life. So when we think about what Jesus is talking about, what he calls his disciples to, to give all of their lives, he's not talking about just part of your lives. He's talking about all. And so for us, what does this look like for us not to just treat giving as this thing that we check in the box that, we, hey, we did this, but what does it look like for us to grow in generosity with our time, our talents, and our treasures? What does it look like for us to fight against a city where we have so much affluence around us, to not compare and contrast ourselves with others, but to be focused on the eternal things. I think giving speaks right to the heart of greed and consumerism that are rampant in our culture. I mean, it's so easy for us. I mean, just, I'm just being fully honest. It's just so easy for me to think about new, bigger, better, right? Well, we live in this great house, but you know, there's some new, that's that new neighborhood. They have that zero entry pool. And man, wouldn't it be great if we had a new house? We didn't have to like do renovations. Like that would be amazing. You know, you just start thinking about this. You start thinking about just the affluence around. And so if I just ask this question uh, here, I was thinking about this recently. If I just ask this question, how many of you in this room are rich? Like probably not very many of you would be like, yeah, I'm rich. Like, you know, we would be, we'd be thinking, well, compared to the people around me, I mean, there's, there's, there's people that are far richer than I am. But let me just like, let's just put this in reality. Is, did you drive here in an air-conditioned car from a house that's covered that has air conditioning? Like we're in the top 5% in the world. Like we're all rich. But do you see what even the, the, culture around us, we get acclimated to thinking, well, we're not rich because that person has more. So the very thing that robs us of contentment is desire for more. And so I think we just need to be mindful of just when we're looking at this passage, we seem mindful of what is, what is money in eternal perspective that Jesus is offering here? What is he after? He's after our hearts. And he's talking about surplus, but she, the widow is giving out of a sacrificial thing. And I believe the disease of greed is bigger, better. It robs us of freedom. And so I just want to say this just real quick, just tangibly. 
uh, when we think about our finances and thinking about growing in generosity, how do we grow in generosity? And I know for many of us, like we, you know, we have debt or we have car payments or different things like that that, that feel so con- uh, constricting on our budgets. But I just, I just know just from speaking to many of you all, a, a lot of us didn't grow up in seeing how, how money was handled well and managed well. And so I would just encourage you, if that's, if that's where you come from, like I, I, th- I want to encourage you to get education of how to budget, of how to, how to, con- how to grow and be as, as stewards of God, what God has entrusted to you. Go to a, fin- a financial peace class. Go um, get an app on your phone. Talk to your spouse around these things. Because for us, I want us as a community of faith to grow in our generosity, not just of our resources, but how Jesus speaks of our lives, to grow of our time. How do we give? How do we become generous people? And we cannot become generous people if we're continually uh, under the enslavement of debt and thinking about those type of things and, and trying to keep up with the Joneses next door. It's just going to rob our joy in our giving. But to me, I don't want to just focus on money here because I think this passage speaks to something so much bigger. I think it speaks to what are you giving your life to? What are you giving your heart's affections to? What are you giving uh, where you're dependent for life on? So look back at verse 29. Let's just go back in, in how this, this whole section is connected. Look at verse 29 and 30 when Jesus is talking about the greatest commandment. We read this out loud. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. Then the scribe, now look at this, in verse 33 The scribe says, right, teacher, you have truly stated that we are to do this, right? But look at what he changes when he uh, recites it back to him. And to love him with all, what's the next word? The heart. What word did he change? It went from your to the. Then he goes uh, with all the understanding and with all the strength. And then Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. I think what he is saying here is what, you've, what you did, scribes, you know the right answer, but you didn't personalize it. Isn't that interesting? He said, love, Lord your God, with the heart and the understanding and the strength. But he didn't say my heart, my strength. And so I think what's happening here is this, if this whole section is connected, look at what he's doing. Something is going on with this widow that outwardly we don't see. But inwardly, something is happening in her heart where she gives trust and dependence to God. What are the scribes and Pharisees doing? Outwardly, they are, they are showing their motivations are for themselves. And inwardly, they are rotting away. And that is why when we look at this, we need to be looking at the heart. What is going on in our hearts where the internal, our internal life flows out into all of life, uh, Proverbs 4.23. Jesus sees the heart, the unseen. So you see, money and power don't define a Christian's identity. We are made right with God, not on the, the, our efforts, our achievements, the works that we do, but on what Christ has done on our behalf. So Tim Keller says this when talking about power and money and what we're chasing after. He says, if you're trying to save yourself, trying to gain in your own self-esteem, trying to prove yourself, you will either hate money and power too much or love them too much. For example, 
You may say, I don't like money and power, and I don't like the people who have them. And staying away from those things actually makes you feel more noble. In that case, you're basically a self-saver. Or perhaps instead you desperately need money and status for the same reason. You're a self-saver. You, you may despise other kinds of self-salvation more than yours, but you're basically doing the same thing just in a different way. So the scribes and Pharisees have to have the reputation. They have to be seen a certain way. They have to be uh, noted in a certain way. They have to have this influence, the people's approval. And outwardly, they're giving their lives, their affection, their devotion to filling themselves with outside resources other than God to fill themselves. I think we have a tendency to do the same thing where we look for life apart from God. I think that is what this passage is speaking to so clearly is that we can look for life in our bios, our, our, what sustains our life. We can look at this apart from God. So what are some ways that we do this? Well, let's just look at our internal lives and what happens internally. Where are you giving your heart's devotion to find the approval of others? Let me ask some questions. Where do you lose sleep if someone may have under, misunderstood you during the day? Where do you uh, lose sleep if there's a conflict or someone isn't listening to your influence? What do you love and desire that you chase after this? You seek this. You have to have this. So this is a question about what we love, about what we give our life to, of where we're looking for treasure we are going to chase after this. So if it's people approval, maybe it's your, your dad, your spouse, your coworker, your boss. You have to have the approval of this person that if, if this is where it is, then you will be restless until you have that person's approval. So this could be uh, job deadlines. This could be the quality of work that you're doing. And it's really not about like doing this under the Lord. It's really about doing this so your boss says, ah, oh, that a boy. Or your dad getting in this neighborhood or going to this school. So your dad says, man, you've really arrived at this. Or your, or your spouse that you're, you're so consumed with what they think that you just have to have their approval. But the problem with chasing after others' approval for your life is that as soon as you have that person's approval, what happens? You have to keep it. And it's just this restless cycle. But then continue to on of what the, the scribes and Pharisees are doing. They're looking for power and status. And so how, how many of us are looking for power, influence, status, and reputation, and our work becomes our identity? And anytime someone critiques our work, it feels like they're critiquing us personally. Like we can't be open to what others might be able to add into a project because it's so tied to our identity. Or think about the control of circumstances for security with money and how, how this comes out. You'll be restless in seeking how to control and manage and try to think through every situation where there's risk and anxiety will just plague your days. Or think about if you're chasing after life apart from God and you're trying to, trying to go after and comfort is the thing that you're seeking most, you will not do anything that will be discomfortable to you. You will be trying to keep the peace with all people and not try to disrupt anything in your life that might cost you something. You see, so it's very easy for us, I believe, to live the way that the scribes and the Pharisees lived, where we're trying to seek life apart from God and we may even be doing things that on the outside might look good, 
but we're doing it with these motivations to try to fill us in ways that they will never fill us. And the reality is, folks, if we don't understand that the system that we're chasing after to find life apart from Christ, whether that is in status or whether that is in how much money we have or the car we drive or where our kids go to school or if I have this person's approval, if I have this control or this security or these type of things, until we realize that that system is broken and it it causes us restlessness and anxiety, until we realize that it doesn't promise the life it, it can't deliver, then we will never turn from it. And so I hope that this morning we actually come with an eternal perspective of Jesus, that he is saying, guys, she gave more because she was giving it to me and she was trusting me for her very life. She gave all of her heart, all of her soul, all of her strength. And that a disciple of Jesus is someone who says the only person that has true life is the creator of the world that can sustain all of life. And that is where I want to find my life hidden in him. And when we find our life hidden in him, then the approval and the power and the things that we're seeking with our money and with the way that we spend our time start to come in alignment with an eternal perspective not a temporal. It's so easy to see life with the eyes that we have, but when Jesus gives us eyes to see, we see that we are spending some of our time, our resources, chasing after things that we think promise life, but end up bankrupt. And we feel restless on this treadmill of never enough, have to have more, there's something else out there, I have to fill myself. But the good news, folks, is while it feels so frightening sometimes to turn our lives over to God and give all, he is a God who already knows where you're giving all in these places anyway. That he already sees your heart. And he says to us, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, it is only in recognizing the generosity of Christ that he serves us in his faithfulness that we see that the love of Christ far outweighs anything that we ever could find love and acceptance in life apart from him. John Owen says, It is not right for us to settle for mere mental assent to doctrines about Jesus, because that does not honor him. There should be love, trust, delight, and longing after the full enjoyment of him. So this morning, as the the band comes up, I want to put some flesh on our faith, that our heart must access all that we know theologically. See, the scribe gave the right answer, but his heart was not truly believing it personally for himself. So he gave the right answer, but his heart was not there. When we turn to him and surrender to him and we put our trust in him, This starts to change how we do all of our life. If Jesus is the Messiah, if he is the God-man, then he actually demands all of us. And this shapes more than just our finances. This shapes what we watch. This shapes what we talk about. This shapes 
what we do, what we consume, this, this shapes everything. That everything that we have is given over to him to find our life in him. And so I want us, just, just for a moment this morning, just to ask and seek and just ask God, where, are, where am I looking for life? Where is there restlessness in my soul that I'm trying to find life apart from you? So there's, there's kneelers up here. Um, you can come up and, and pray with one of us. But I want you, to, even if you're just in your seat, I want you just to take these couple minutes and just do an inventory and ask God, God, you already know my heart. You already know my restlessness in my work environment. You already know my restlessness in my marriage. You already know the restlessness that I have. I am weary and tired. And today, would you show me where I am looking for life apart from you? Would you make it visible to me of what is happening in the internal life of where I'm seeking life apart from you to deliver that never will? And just to ask, ask the Holy Spirit to empower you to not, to begin in those days when, you, when you're, you're tempted to live in this way, that you would begin engaging God. And like what Tim said earlier, that my identity as a new creation is I don't have to rely on this for life. But through the Spirit, I can actually choose to live a different way. And that's how it starts to become tangible for us. That God, I don't, I don't have to, to live in insecurity and restlessness and anxiety anymore. But I can, like the widow, come to you with all that I have and lay it before you and that you would be the sustainer of my life. That you would be the one that I would actually seek approval of. And because of what Christ has done on our behalf, you have the acceptance of Christ, the acceptance of God. So let's take a couple minutes and just reflect and then we're going to respond um, out of this place of recognizing that God has been so generous to us that he sees us and that he calls us to give all of ourselves to him, to his tender care.